Hello, my name is Wayne. I do go to church here. Um, for those I haven't met, welcome. I'm the lead pastor here, and I've just returned from four weeks sabbatical, part of our normal rest rotation we do for our staff. And I want to start this morning by sharing with you six things that I learned or relearned on my sabbatical. All right, number six, uh, my publisher, I learned that uh, he likes the new book submission that I had made, so that's great news. The bad news is, yeah, wait, the bad news is now I have to go back and correct a lot. There's a lot of rewriting to do, but that's great. Number five, the torn tendons in my elbow, uh, for which many of you have been praying, are actually starting to heal, and surgery looks much, much less likely. Thank you. Thank you for your prayer. That is very good news. Uh, number four thing, I was blessed to worship at a number of different churches while I was on sabbatical, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot of things that can help us as we fulfill our ministry. That was super. Number three, I learned once again, children's literature is awesome, just awesome. I read 14 or 15 books on my sabbatical, which is actually kind of about norm for me in a month. Uh, but, but on the sabbatical, 11 of them were from the Rangers Apprentice series, Kitty Lit Books. Love, love the Rangers Apprentice. Halt is my hero. Uh, number two, I learned there is no place like Frisco Bible Church. Hey. Amen. Those other brethren were great. I, I had a wonderful time with them, but we, we have a special and unique place in God's work, and it is, it is just excellent to be with you, so delighted with that. And number one, I learned again that I have the greatest partner in the world. My sweetheart and I took a lot of extra time uh, to, to particularly pray through and work through our relationship, looking for things we don't normally talk about and think about in the flow of days and weeks, and it was wonderful. Can I, can I make a recommendation to you? Next, next vacation you have, at least one day. Okay, reserve at least one day uh, where you're not running around, you're not doing things, you're not going anywhere. All you're doing is, is working through uh, the foundation and the roof and the aspects of your relationship. Spend time on that. It will be the best part of your vacation. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right. Now, uh, so good to be back with you. Afterwards, you can tell me what you learned while I was away, but uh, let's start with prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will delight in you today because it is a joy to gather together. From the day you saved our souls until you call us home, it is a joy, even through the pains and the volatility of life, it is a joy to walk with you. I pray, please Lord, I pray that you will have us walk wisely and prepare us for the day of the Lord that is coming. And I pray for anyone, anyone who is here that doesn't know that they are ready for the day of the Lord, that they will be ready after our time today. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I was reading the ancient, wonderful book, Zephaniah, the other day, and I was, I was wowed as Zephaniah was describing some really volatile uh, mixes, and, uh, and then I started laughing. I'm reading my Bible, and I started laughing because looking at his volatile mixes reminded me of some of my experiences from my own chemistry classes. For example, let me just give you one true life story that I experienced. When two lab partners take a solution of hydrochloric acid, and they combine that with sodium hypochlorite, uh, common beach, okay? Hydrochloric acid, very strong acid with sodium hypochlorite, it produces two things. It produces sodium chloride, and it produces a weak kind of acid, the kind we use for cleaning swimming pools. All right, very normal chemical reaction. However, if, if one of the young men mistakenly puts in double the prescribed amount of hydrochloric acid, okay, puts in double the amount, then a secondary reaction occurs. The hydrochloric acid does a secondary reaction with the weak acid that's been formed, and it releases water and chlorine gas. Oh, yes. 
in a crowded high school chemistry lab. It releases lots and lots of deadly poisonous chlorine gas. And by the way, just for the record, in case Mr. Rickards is listening to this online somewhere, Kent Kessler was the one who put in the hydrochloric acid. It was not me. It was Kent Kessler. I want the record straight now forever. All right. What a volatile mix, all right? Zephaniah is intrigued by even more volatile mixes when God calls him to prophesy. Turn to Zephaniah. It's near the end of your Old Testament, actually the fourth to the last book of your Old Testament. And let's meet Zephaniah, the chemistry teacher, because that's really what he is. He's a chemistry teacher. Read chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the words of the princess bride, isn't that a great beginning, right? The word of the Lord came. Nothing is better. Nothing's more significant. God's word came. Wow. And it came to the prophet Zephaniah who passed it on to us. Uh, in your notes, you, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open your bulletin up. There's notes there that will help us study together. You'll see a little introductory information on Zephaniah. Uh, we start with a, a quote from my old friend and professor John Hanna. Look what Dr. Hanna says. Singularly among the prophets. No others do this. Singularly among the prophets, Zephaniah recounts his heritage back four generations. This implies he was a man of prominence and even royalty, close quote. However, we can't assume, however cool that is, we can't assume Zephaniah is of David's royal family. It's likely, but it's still presumptive to assume that his great-grandfather Hezekiah is the same King Hezekiah of Judah who stood with the prophet Isaiah against the forces of Assyria four generations earlier. Zephaniah may be related to King Josiah, the direct descendant of King Hezekiah, or their forefathers may have been different Hezekiahs. Either way, Zephaniah lived through a, a roller coaster era. His times are fascinating. Zephaniah grew up under the reigns of Manasseh and his son Ammon, two of the nastiest blisters to ever hold power in any government in all of human history. All of you who are lamenting the presidential choices in America this year, you, you should look at alternatives like these wretches before you declare these to be the worst of times, okay? Manasseh, Manasseh ripped open the bellies of pregnant women with a sword just for fun. These are horrible people. And, and even though wonderfully Manasseh repented at the end of his life, he reigned for a very long time, and every day of his rule was torment for God's people. When Manasseh finally died, his son Ammon took the throne. Here's his brief, horrible story. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, he, Ammon, did what was evil in the Lord's sight as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways his father had walked. He served the idols his father had served, and he worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord God of his ancestors, did not walk in the way of the Lord. Amon's servants conspired against the king and killed him in his own house. Then the common people executed all those who had conspired against King Amon and made his son Josiah king in his place. Oh, what a happy time, right? Mess upon mess takes the country to the brink of civil war. But, get this, this is amazing. God continues his faithful plan. And that little boy, Josiah, who frankly didn't have a chance, he didn't have a chance. Guess what? By God's grace, he ended up being the single best ruler in all of human history. There has never been anyone who ever ruled as well as Josiah. You, you continue on in 2 Kings uh, chapter 22, you read this. He, Josiah, did what was right in the Lord's sight 
And he walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or to the left. Close quote. God used Josiah to reform his broken country, proving that it is never too late. It is never too late to reform a broken country. Zephaniah probably preaches after the young king Josiah's reforms began. For those who are keeping score at home, it was 622 B.C. when Josiah began to change his country for the better. Either Zephaniah preached while that was going on or Zephaniah's messages came before Josiah's reforms and they inspired King Josiah to begin his walk on the straight path. Now, I want you to look at the direct parallel between these two guys, all right? Josiah led Judah through five big changes, five massive changes, and Zephaniah commented on and influenced every one of these. I put the reference from Zephaniah in parentheses to the right. First thing Josiah attacked and Zephaniah talked about was getting rid of Baal and other idol worship, and they did. More on that in a moment. Second thing was syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy word. It means that, that a whole... We all struggle with syncretism. It means something really holy and good is unrighteously combined with a bunch of nonsense and it ends up being a kind of unholy mess. Josiah attacked that and very successfully. Third thing was fawning after foreign lifestyles. Fourth of his great reforms was getting rid of injustice and corruption among the civic government, a, a remarkable achievement. And the fifth one was getting rid of false priests, all right? This was Zephaniah and Josiah's great work together. Now, while they're doing that beyond Judah, this was an era of tumultuous change, not at all that different from our own. As the child Josiah takes the throne of his murdered father, wicked King Ammon, world events are rapidly moving out of their accustomed ruts. Um, the 300-year dominance of Assyria is coming to an unexpectedly rapid end, just as the prophet Nahum had foretold. But intriguingly, get this, God takes the vision of Zephaniah beyond world events. In, instead of focusing on the arresting big political movements of his day, Zephaniah zeroes in on the sins that are still rampant in Judean lives. Instead of getting wrapped up in the politics of his day, Zephaniah focuses on what are, frankly, bigger and more eternal issues. These, these are his two big ideas. I put these in your notes. Imminent wrath and comfort in the covenant. Imminent wrath and comfort in the covenant. God will judge. It won't be long. And there is comfort for his people if they will rest in and live according to their covenant relationship with God. Stop right there. Stop right there for just a moment. Think of all the politics, all the major issues that keep being thrust before your nose every minute of every day. Do these things matter? Please say yes. Sure they do. They matter to God. They should matter to us. Zephaniah didn't ignore Assyria and Babylon. He spoke about them. But his major focus was bigger than any human government. It was bigger than any human problem. Zephaniah's big ideas were that God will judge sin and God's people can and should take comfort in their covenant relationship with Yahweh. What would change in your Facebook feed if those became your main ideas as well? If you and I imitated Zephaniah more and political activists less, if we focused on sin and covenant, how would we come across to this broken world? I submit that we cannot be what God calls us to be. He calls us to be more than conquerors. We cannot be more than conquerors unless we courageously major on sin and covenant. You want to have a positive impact in trying times? Live and speak about sin and covenant. When the next crisis comes, and every week has one, compassionately make your response about God's words on sin and God's words on covenant grace. Nothing 
Nothing else matters as much. Don't get caught up in the bombastic rhetoric. Just speak truth about right and wrong and speak truth about a covenant relationship with God. All God's people said? Yeah. And we see Zephaniah's judgment and covenant emphasis right away. Right away, very first prophecy. Look in our notes. Um, I want to show you the, the outline of this first message. Very brilliantly crafted chiasm here. Uh, take a look. You can see it on the slide if you don't have notes. He starts with general terminal judgment. Now, now, those are loaded terms, so let me explain. General terminal judgment is a theological term. It means God's justice poured out in a final, permanent fashion. This doesn't speak to consequences here on earth. Other books in your Bible, like Hebrews in your New Testament, it speaks to consequences now that are part of how, how God judges and shapes individual lives here on earth. But Zephaniah 1 is describing a great day to come when final judgment will be faced by all. Look at the next part down. That's followed by a specific message about Judah's sin. That's in verses 4 through, 18, 4 through 13. See that? Okay, now get this. It all flips. Chapter 2, 1 through 2 gives an encouraging word for Judah gathered together under God's hand. This is the exact positive parallel to the corrective word against Judah in chapter 1, right? You got, the, you got the corrective and then you got the positive encouragement. Then we've got the last part, a positive word for all, not just Jews, all who trust Yahweh. Isn't that great? God's general terminal judgment is perfectly balanced with an offer of general rescue from that judgment. And all of that, okay, see all those? Now that all revolves around the middle idea, the great day of the Lord. Everything in history, everything in the future, all judgment, all covenant grace, it's all caught up in the coming day of the Lord. Everything points to that day that is to come. Got it? Okay, now look to the right side of our notes and let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away man and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Take a deep breath, all right? I'm going to say something that sounds shocking to modern ears, okay? Cut your deep breath. I think what we just read is a very hopeful message. Zephaniah chapter 1 is the foundation of hope. General terminal judgment is good news. Now, I know, I know, what, you're, I know what you're thinking as you hear that. In your favorite uh, Watto voice from Tatooine, you're saying, uh, Annie, <laughs> this seems backwards, right? Firm ideas of right and wrong. They cause all the problems, Annie. <laughs> Only a Sith believes in absolutes, right? I understand <laughs> why you may think that way. I know why you think that way because... Because you are bombarded daily with headlines like this one from last week's Dallas Morning News. Saw this last week. Baylor Code of Conduct, fear of judgmental responses, silenced sexual assault victims. That's the quote on the headline. The story declares, listen carefully. The story declares that if there were no standard of right and wrong at Baylor, then the students there would have reported the rash of rapes to the authorities. All right? Although I don't know how they'd have known rape was wrong if there's no standard. Of anyway, the... The, the, the article goes on, get this, the article goes on to say that the rapes, it implies this, the rapes wouldn't even have happened if sexual immorality were just embraced on Baylor's campus. That's what it says. That is their point. Codes of conduct are to blame. If what God calls sin would just be exalted on campus, then the evil of rape would never have occurred. According to the Dallas Morning News, the only hope, hope you can only find hope in eliminating any judgment about sin. That is the insane world in which Zephaniah lived and in which we live. 
Right and wrong are continually under attack, especially God's words on right and wrong. And that's why God's declaration of general terminal judgment is good news. It's good to hear truth spoken. It's good to hear someone care enough to speak truth in a world as screwed up as the Dallas Morning News. And it's good to recognize the truth of sin and judgment because, you know this, right? Because we have to face sin before we can understand grace. We can't enjoy the covenant without first dealing with sin. Most of you know we develop a premise for every study we do here. Here's, here's what I wrote to our pulpit team. Okay, this is the why. Why are we studying Zephaniah? Here's the premise. It seems counterintuitive to modern minds, current minds. But when one honestly examines human shortcomings before God, one is eventually and inevitably drawn to the unshakable hope established on God's promises. This, this is a key practice in becoming more than a conqueror, honestly regarding sin. That leads to repentance, which leads to the full promises of God who atones for that sin. Honesty about sin before God leads to joyful hope in God, the only one who can deal with our sin. Attempts to mask or pretend about sin eliminate any chance for hope, close quote. Let's stick with campus images to illustrate this. Um, I want to read to you an article from the satirical magazine, The Babylon Bee. And by the way, satirical means it's made up, okay? I didn't explain that first hour and had some fascinating conversations. This is a made up <laughs> article. All right, listen carefully. While some college campuses have established safe spaces where the disenfranchised can avoid the pressures, biases, and judgments of the world, mainline Protestant denominations are taking it one step further. The entire umbrella group has now been designated a safe space for those who would otherwise be offended by the gospel, sources confirmed Wednesday. Speaking on behalf of a plethora of denominations, a spokesperson issued the following statement. Effective immediately, we are declaring all mainline Protestant churches safe spaces where there are no judgments, conviction, repentance, or gospel presentations whatsoever. Close quote. On behalf of all mainline Protestantism, the spokesperson expressed heartfelt joy that they were able to make such a major step toward accepting, and not judging, anyone who may be on a path toward God's judgment. Our congregations are now spaces that are safe from the freeing power of God in the gospel. Close quote. That, that my friends, is brilliant. I mean, that is just, the author understands Zephaniah 1. You can't get to the good news of God's covenant love without first understanding God's judgment on sin. Now, remember how I said Zephaniah reminds me of a chemistry teacher? Here's why, here's why. Get to, get to the chemistry here in chapter 1, verse 4. I will stretch out my hand, God says, against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests, those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the heavenly host, those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord's prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated His guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold and fill their master's house with violence and deceit. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. There will be an outcry from the fish gate, talking about Jerusalem, wailing from the second district, loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. And punish the men who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. 
They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. Put in a chemical formula, here's what God and Zephaniah are saying. Ready? Humans plus idolatry equals maximum volatility. All right? There's lots of poison gas produced when these things are combined. He deals with seven reactants, seven idolatries that should not be mixed with humans. Idolatry number one is Baal worship. Uh, look up here. Here's a typical Baal worship place. It's called a high place. This is a Baal altar. By the way, I rode an old donkey thousands of feet up on an incredibly narrow trail. No exaggeration. Beyond the donkey's wide belly, could not see any ledge underneath me. Just to get this photo for you, you better appreciate it. Um, <laughs> these, these were, pla I prayed a lot. These, these were places, if you don't know about Baal worship, these were places of ritualized sexuality. Gr grotesque, wanton, ritual sex worship. Um, probably the closest thing today are strip clubs. Okay, a strip club would be the closest thing we have to Baal worship. And, and by the way, just as today, back then, no one was supposed to make moral comments on these places. Oh, we don't, we don't you know, boys will be boys. We don't talk about, but Zephaniah commented on it. And his bold statement was part of a major change in Judah. This is so awesome. Listen to this. Because Zephaniah and others spoke out against the idolatry of wanton sexuality, the Baal high places were eventually all torn down. This this was a first in all of the ancient world. This had never happened before. Look, 2 Kings 23, talking about King Josiah. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places. That's what I showed you. The high places in the city of Judah and the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations, all the hosts of heaven. Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where those priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. 2 Chronicles 34 is very succinct. It says, Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. God used Zephaniah and Josiah to do something unprecedented. They eliminated the nasty perversion of Baal worship. Can you give my hand, please? That's really worthy of applause. Now, along the same lines... I want to brag on you for a minute and on our Lord. You know, one thing that never happens in our day is the defeat of an alcohol expansion vote. Just never happens in this era. But this past year in Frisco, we faced a very well-financed ballot initiative that would have expanded alcohol sales in Frisco to the point, and this is the key issue, to the point where straight bars and strip clubs could have operated in our city. Every expert expected this to pass. We were going to have strip joints in Frisco because of this vote. And yet, you did the unprecedented. Thanks to leadership like people, uh, like our mayor and leadership from Dr. Martin, the head of our Frisco Christian Alliance, we as a city said no to the idolatry of strip joints. In fact, we defeated them by a very, very large margin. Why did we fight that and win? Because you and I know that we have enough poison in our lives without the strip joint Baal worship to go along with it. How about you give yourselves a hand, too? That's really remarkable. Well done. <laughs> Idolatry number two, which we also don't need, is astrology. That's the issue in the first part of verse 5. Incense burned on rooftops. You see that? That was part of ancient astrology. There was a whole process. They went through. I don't have time to describe all of it, but... but in essence, it was very similar to what modern people do when they look up and read through the positions of the planets and trying to decide their next day's work based on their horoscope. It's the same thing. 
50 times. The Bible calls this the nonsense it is. But the practice became pretty widespread nonetheless back then. Now, thank goodness, thank goodness, Christians today never dabble in astrology. <laughs> listen, listen. If you're caught up in astrology, please stop pretending that it's harmless. It's not. It is a volatile spiritual combination that does not fit with your covenant God. Call it the sin it is. And let God lead you to the guidance of his word instead. Speaking of not mixing together, idolatry number three is leader worship. That's the next point, uh, the end of verse five. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. Uh, the Hebrew texts we have are really tough to read here. The best consensus seems to be that Milcom is a form of the Hebrew word Malkaim. Malkaim means their king. There are people who worship Yahweh, and with the very same breath, direct worship to a human leader. Zephaniah calls this syncretism what it is. It's sin. When a church spends most of their money and almost all their time promoting the image of their lead pastor, right? When Christians swoon over a political candidate, when more time is spent dealing with earthly politics than with heavenly rewards... When we worship leaders, Malcame is taking God's place, and that is a formula for disaster. Now, up to this point, you might be feeling pretty smug, right? I don't practice sexual perversion or astrology. I certainly don't do political worship. I can't stand any of them. <laughs> all right. But I bet you that idolatry number four hits almost all of us right between the eyes. You know what idolatry number four is? It's believers who don't follow. That's the problem in verses 6 through 7. Those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. This is possibly the strongest statement on this in the whole Old Testament. Um, th th this is the ugliness of people who are in a covenant relationship with God, but they just quit talking to Him. They stop worshiping. They, st they stop seeking after God at all. And if we're frank, in one sense or another, almost all of us who are believers in Christ, we have been there, Right? In, in, here's the New Testament terms. Here's how the New Testament puts it. We're believers who have stopped following. We're no longer following Jesus Christ. Now, the solution for this horrible tragedy isn't to question the person's belief, not to question their justification. The right answer is to punish our foolish self-reliance and draw near to God, something the Apostle Paul describes at length in the New Testament. Just look. Look at verse 7. That's what it's describing here. Look. We believers who quit following, we are called to be silent to a humble response of consecration. And then look what we're shown. Look at verse 7. We're shown a picture of the banquet to which God invites all of his chosen ones. We're reminded that we are consecrated. We are consecrated by God's grace alone, not our efforts. That way, when we remember who really makes us holy, we never get over the shock that he invited us. Idiots like us are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're God's guests at his feast. Remembering that, we are then again energized to follow the Lord with gladness. Amen? May it be so. Idolatry number five, hipsterism. Really, I know I made that word up, but that's the deal in verse eight. The point isn't clothing. The, the problem is the Judeans are more interested in clothing than in the Lord who provides all the clothing. Thank goodness we're never like that. <laughs> we never spend more time on our clothes or our hair or our shoes or our stuff than we do engaging with the triune God, right? Oh, laddie, we do. In fact, our era has a really funky twist on it. You know what we do? 
We spend an obscene amount of time trying to get a look that looks as if we spent no time at all. It's really fascinating. I think history will laugh at that. It's very deceptive and it's very volatile. Uh, same is true for idolatry number six, spiritism. Uh, let's read, read verse nine again. On that day I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. What is this talking about? Skipping is not evil. Listen, here's what's going on. Um, there was a pagan idea. It actually began hundreds of years before Zephaniah. The idea was the threshold of a house, okay, the threshold of a house, the wooden board, that contained all of the spirits that would plague that house, okay? Particularly the evil spirits were in the threshold. So you didn't step on the threshold. Because if you stepped on the threshold, <laughs> it released all of the demonic beings into the home. The prophet laughs at this nonsense. By the way, not only are spirits not physically tied the skipper is conveniently missing the biggest problem. What's the biggest problem you bring into any home? You! You! Right? I say this all the time at Newcomer Desserts, right? Somebody said, we're just looking for a wonderful church. I said, well, then don't come. You'll run it. I don't even know you, and I know you'll run it because you're evil. Right? We all are. Humans are sinful. You see, the point's not messing up some chakra, Nonsense. Point's not stepping on some piece of wood. The point is human beings are inherently flawed. The reality is pagan spirituality does nothing to stop the real issue, which is the violence and the deceit of every human heart. Zephaniah warns against one more bad mixture. Idolatry number seven is complacency. Now, this one is buried in the judgment passages, but it's nonetheless timeless. The point is that complacently going about life as if there is no God of justice is a big, foolish mistake. Please don't misunderstand, by the way, one thing I need to point out here, th this, this passage is fairly often misused. Because commerce is mentioned, some people make the mistake of seeing those who buy and sell as inherently idolatrous, right? Commerce, capitalism is inherently evil. They say, okay, if that's the case, then in other judgment passages that are just like this, which mention childbirth, that would mean childbirth must be inherently evil. It must be inherently idolatrous. Is childbirth inherently evil? I'm not saying is it painful. Is it, is it inherently evil, yes or no? No. And stop elbowing your child. Your child's a gift. Anyway, the, the, um, God isn't saying commerce is evil any more than he says childbirth is evil. They're wonderful. He is saying don't get so caught up in business that you forget the Lord who judges all. While we do our work, know that he is watching how we do it and what we do. I love this observation. It came from Laura Aldrich who leads in our Frisco Bible Kids Ministries. Laura wrote me and said this. I mustn't become complacent, comfortable in my sin. Zephaniah 1.12 speaks to how we have become so comfortable in our sin, we don't fear the consequences. Close quote. She's right. Because we are comfortable with all of our idolatries, humans keep setting themselves up. They keep setting themselves up for the inevitable explosion. Look at verse 14, and let's pick up where the explosion comes. The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Listen. The day of the Lord, then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will not be able to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Ah, the day of the Lord. 
I haven't time to describe this concept in detail today. We will deal with it a little more in this series. If you want to understand, there are lots and lots of scripture references in your Bible, particularly in the, in the prophets to the day of the Lord. If you understand how they all fit together, and it really is a fascinating study, I highly recommend this book by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, The Footsteps of the Messiah. Very, very good book. It will lay it all out for you. Briefly, I want to share a few points. This is what we need to be able to learn from Zephaniah, okay? Just a, just a few major points about the day of the Lord. The Jewish understanding of the day of the Lord, which I think is the important one to understand. The Jewish understanding is it is a tribulation period event. That means there's a specific seven-year era that is going to come, that is, that is commanded by the prophets, a seven-year era, and the day of the Lord is part of that. It's part of the tribulation. Second thing, the day of the Lord is a judgment on the nation of Israel. In fact, a lot of passages call the day of the Lord the time of Jacob's trouble, but as God's judging Israel, all of the world is going to be, going to be caught up in the impact. Uh, of course, third thing you need to know, you do know this, right? Everybody is guilty. Every single human is deserving of God's wrath. When, 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 when my kids were little and they would say, that's not fair, I want what's fair. Ooh, they regretted that. Because we got the Bible and we sat down and we looked at what fair was. Fair is judgment. And they would end up saying, okay, I don't want fair, I don't want fair. I want mercy. You're right, you're darn straight you do. And amazingly, God provides both justice and mercy, which humans don't. It's astonishing. The, the, the three stated purposes bring that out. The first purpose of the day of the Lord in the Bible is to break the stubborn Jewish nation, all right? Second purpose of the day of the Lord is to bring, this is awesome, to bring millions of people worldwide, not just Jews, bring millions of them to trust in Yahweh and the Messiah, the Savior that he provides before the day of the Lord. The third thing is to bring an end to wickedness and idolatry because God is holy and there must be holiness. That's what verses 14 through 18 are all about. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's a mighty explosion that has simmered for millennia as human beings have mixed with idolatry. But listen, Listen, you, you heard the amazing good news there. The precipitate of this explosion, of this reaction, is salvation. Remember the chemistry experiment that went wrong? Look, look up here. Look at the formula again. We were understandably earlier when I showed this formula to you, we were absorbed with the chlorine gas, right? But what else was formed in that reaction? There was a solid, a precipitate that was formed in that reaction. What was it? What was it, everybody? Water. Salt. Salt was the salt. There was water, but there was salt. Salt. The great preservative. The thing that preserved, the thing that makes everything taste better. Salt was formed in that experiment. In the same way, God's judgment creates a sodium chloride kind of preservation in his covenant love. The precipitate of the explosive day of the Lord is salvation. Look, chapter 2, read verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation. He's talking to Judah in the last days. Before the decree takes effect, effect and the day passes like chaff before the burning anger of the Lord overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. Righteousness and humility. These are the keys for Israel gathered together in the last days. The same, of course, applies to the gathered church today. You guys all gathered right here today. We must pursue righteousness and humility. It's, it's right there, black and white. But that can be really hard, doesn't it? It, it takes real courage to pursue righteousness and humility. Frankly, uh, I don't know if, you, if you've noticed this, but in, in frightening times, it's much easier to panic than it is to pursue righteousness and humility. It's much easier to attack other people. 
But God's salvation comes through holy humbleness. On July 20th, 2016, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a new terrorism repression bill. Now, supposedly, this new law is going to make it harder for Muslim terrorists to recruit homegrown Russian kids into jihad. However, buried in that new law is a provision that the Russian Orthodox Church worked very hard to insert. The new provision, listen carefully, makes it illegal for any person to share the good news of Jesus Christ outside of a church building. Yep. It's true. It, it's like something out of the dark days of the 16th century czars. Biblical Christians cannot legally hold Bible studies in their apartments in Russia anymore. They cannot pass out Bibles, give away free Bibles to anyone anymore. The Baptists, a couple of my friends are Baptist pastors, they can't have potlucks anymore. That's really hard on them. It's very difficult. The, the, the Christian cannot live a biblical freedom in Russia as, as part of society. She now has to act according to state-mandated rules that line up with the activities of the official and often apostate Orthodox Church. Now, I've been in Russia. I've taught there a few times. I have friends there, and I wrote to them to console them. While I was on sabbatical, I wrote some letters, and I, I, I asked them how they're doing. I just prayed for them and was hurting with them. I, I just wrote, how are you doing under this new oppression? I want to share with you, in fact, I think I put this in your notes, a, a letter I got that speaks for them all. Every single response I got was some variation of this theme. Pastor Vasily wrote me this. He said, we must live as God's holy people, caring more about what he says than what any government decrees, yet we will do so with humility, trying to love all around us and recognizing that our own sin is our main concern. We cannot change the world until we see, unless we see God sanctifying our own hearts. Wayne, he said, we will do what the remnant of Russian Christians have always done. Pray, relax, and carry on. Close quote. Pray, relax, and carry on. Righteousness and humility. You see it? You see it? It's just like Zephaniah 2.3. And by the way, I got that letter and I immediately prayed for you. And I prayed for me that that is how we will respond to our own persecutions, that we will relax in God's covenant and we will carry on. Sure, this world is full of horrible explosions, but the precipitate of all those is salvation, and that is the last and greatest point in Zephaniah's first sermon, that God's concealment is for all people who seek him. It's unfortunate the Hebrew in verse 3 becomes so confusing in English. Ula'e, uh, it's a combination word, and it's one of those words that relies on the context for definition. We rightly render it perhaps, but... It's really more than our English words can express. When, when you find ule in the, in the Bible, you have to look at the context to determine whether it's one of two things. It can either mean something of real hope or it can be something of doubt. Now, the context here is clearly hopeful. The one who turns to God will be protected. Sadly, in English, it sounds like doubt. Now, I know it's hard to see this because our minds read the word perhaps, but I encourage you, when you read Zephaniah 2.3, read it as a statement of sure hope. You who trust in Yahweh will be protected in the day of judgment. Love the way Michael Bentley explains verse 3. Look what Dr. Bentley says. How wonderful is the grace and mercy of our God in giving us the assurance of his presence and care so that whatever happens to us, we know that all will be well. God does not behave like men. He's not vindictive. He holds out the hand of love to all who will turn to him and receive his mercy. Same offer still stands today. The vilest sinner has but to stretch out the hand of faith, even though it is empty of anything of value, and cling to the cross of Christ. He or she will then find forgiveness and eternal life. Close quote. 
Since we've been dealing with chemistry all day, I want to show you a chemical reaction. By the way, there's some New Testament scripture read in the background of this, and, and it all is used to illustrate the point that the God, the God who rightly judges is the same God who offers salvation to everyone who will seek him. Take a look, a little chemistry for you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God placed on Him the sin of us all. So that He could justify the sins of the whole world. That's God's promise. That's what Zephaniah was predicting. Pray with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone, anyone who is studying with us right now, wherever they may be, anywhere around the world, so many wonderful people that we get to study with and grow with in Christ. I pray for people here in this auditorium right now who don't trust Jesus as Savior, who are not ready for the justice of the day of the Lord because they haven't accepted the covenant of grace. I beg you to draw that person to you right now. Listen, friend. Jesus is the very Son of God, and he died on the cross to pay for the sin of everyone who would trust him. And he rose from the dead. He conquered death so you and I could not just believe, but we could follow him in everlasting life. Right now, if you have never trusted Christ as Savior, do so. Do so now. Just be honest. Just say, I am a sin. I deserve judgment. I do. It's a fact. And I know that I will face it. Talk to God about that. And then, and then thank God that he has not left you to just justice, but he offers you mercy. Because Jesus paid for your sin. He actually paid the just price. Justice is met so you could receive grace. Say, I believe in Jesus. I trust him as my Savior. Him alone. If you just prayed, if you just trusted Christ as Savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. Just raise your hand. Good for you. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Now, all of you who are believers in Christ, you're not off the hook. You talk to God right now with me. Lord, I am sorry for how poorly I have followed that idolatry number four hit, hit us right between the eyes, Lord. We, in fact, Lord, I'm sorry because I have been so proud of myself for the few areas in which I have followed well, which actually erodes all the good of those. And I've tried to use that as a mask to pretend about all the other areas where I'm not following you just don't exist. I am sorry. And I pray that I can have the joy of really following you, of remembering your banquet that you have consecrated me by God's grace in Jesus. And that I will, I will repudiate my sin and I will walk after you by your grace. If you prayed that with me, along with me, that you would be a better follower and not just a believer, why don't you raise your hand too? Raise your hands. That's very encouraging. 
Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters of mine. I do pray that you will, as I know you will, that you will empower us to keep the covenant we have with you, that you will empower us to live as followers and not just believers. Thank you for the offering we're about to take. It's a wonderful way to follow, to live out who we are. And we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.